my favorite place to be. Not really. <laughs> um, okay, well, I just was going to share a little bit about what was going on when I saw you guys last year. Things were very different. <laughs> um, uh, we were, I think, probably about just three months pregnant at the time. I don't even know if I was showing yet. Um, and <laughs> I was working for Empower. Jacob was working for a ministry called The Catch Project, um, doing anti-human trafficking prevention type stuff. And um, things have changed a lot since you saw us last. <laughs> so we welcomed little Oliver into the world. And as Luann said, he's very, very active. So we are very, very exhausted all the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought I knew what jet lag was before. And then now I know what mom lag is all the time. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I just, I have a short time. Sorry, I won't. I just wanted to share with you guys just that we're making a few changes in our ministry. Um, we, right after Oliver was born, we just started praying. We both actually started praying separately, Jacob and I, because we just felt like God was leading us to do something a little bit different. And, and then we came together and started praying together for a while. And we, can I stand to the side? No. I feel like I'm too short for this. Um, <laughs> we just felt like God was leading us as a family to be in ministry together. We wanted to be able to raise up Oliver in ministry and um, not have that look like me going off to the village and Jacob staying in Chiang Mai and taking Oliver with me. Or um, So we just started praying, God, what do you want us to do? Do you want us to work for Empower? Do you want us to work for the Catch Project where Jacob was? Do you want us to start over somewhere new? Do you want us to leave Thailand? Do you want, what do you want us to do? And um, we both felt strongly in our hearts that God was leading us to work for Empower together. So we went to our leaders at Empower and we said, this is what we want to do. Will you guys just take one whole month? Don't mention it to us. Just pray about it. <laughs> because we don't want to come just because it's convenient. Just because it would be easy. And so they went and prayed about it and they came back and said, yes, we want to do that. So um, Jacob finished up his work at the Catch Project, and then we came here. So when we go back to Thailand starting June 1st, we'll start working together with Empower International as a family. And um, we're not totally sure what that's going to look like, but we know we're going to have Oliver River with us wherever we go, and maybe some future kids, Lord willing, um, taking them out into the villages and doing outreaches at the children's homes and um, just different... All the different stuff that I've told you guys about in the past we'll be able to do together as a family. And that's very exciting for us. Um, there's two specific projects that we're going to be working on that I just wanted to share with you guys really quick so that you, you could keep us in your prayers. The first is um, what we're calling, at this point, it might have a better name in the future, but we're calling a transition home. So what that is is... Um, the children in our children's homes. We have one children's home in Maytho where the team from this church went. We have another children's home in Maysot where you guys also went, but we didn't have a home there at the time, but we do now. Um, so what happens is in the villages, the village schools only go up until 
it's about seventh grade level here in America, and then they're done. School's finished, and the kids are expected to get married, to start having kids, to work in the fields, to do whatever it is that they do in the village that they're in. So we wanted to be able to offer our kids the opportunity for continued educa- education. So what, we, what we're planning is we're going to start a home where we, the kids can come from the villages. They can live in this like dorm-type situation. Um, we, we're raising money. We're already doing this with some of the kids, where we've raised the money to send them to high school. So they're, they're all in high school. We just had our first graduate from the high school program, actually. And we're going to send him to university this next year. Um, but this home will be somewhere where they can live. So we'll be able to work with them and do daily devotions with them and have them help us in ministry. So if we have outreaches on the weekend when they're not in high school or college or wherever it is that they're going, we'll take them out and we'll be training them up in the ministry and how to lead and because a lot of them want to be pastors and they want to be worship leaders we have very musical kids for some reason (laughs) all of them play some sort of instrument um so jacob's actually going to be really involved in that he's got a lot of teaching background and so we're going to just get home started we're going to have some dorms going and um yeah that's going to be a big project for us it's just starting up so we're not sure exactly what it's going to look like but we're excited to be able to offer that right now our kids we're just having them live in different children's home all over and we want to be able to provide a home where everyone's together so that's project number one (laughs) um and then the second the second program that we're really going to be a part of do we have that we'll start with a video and then i'll talk a little bit more about it (laughs) okay (laughs) So we are starting an academy basically to raise up missionaries and send them out into the world. Um, Those are going to be people from America, from Thailand, from anywhere in the world that's called to mission work. We're going to bring them to Chiang Mai and we're just going to teach them how to be missionaries. So there'll be classroom time, there'll be outreach time. It'll just be hands-on teaching what the missionary life is. Everything from budgeting to fundraising to language learning, um, anything. We'll teach them how to get out there and preach the gospel, how to do dramas, how to do everything that we do on outreaches. So Jacob and I are both going to be very involved. This is going to be our first 10-week course. Um, So we're going to kind of go through it with them and learn how to do it so that we can help more in the future. And that starts in September. We're very excited. Um, If you guys know anyone that wants to attend... (laughs) send them my way and we can get them the information on that and um yeah oh yeah so we're build (laughs) we'll show a video at the end we're actually building um well we've bought a building that we kind of tore down and we're rebuilding and it's going to be for this academy it's also part of it is also going to be the dorms for the um transitional home that i was telling you about before so we've got dorms set aside for the missionary training people and dorms set aside for the kids that are coming from the villages and so they can all be involved in each other's lives. And um, Those are the two main projects. We're also still going out to Matho. We're still working at the children's homes. We're still doing everything that we've done in the past, leadership conferences and um, all of that. But the two main things we're doing right now are the transition home and the... We just... Global Leadership Academy. We just changed the name of it, and I keep wanting to go back to the old name. Global Leadership Academy. (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, Yeah.
Oh, thank you, Dad. Our greatest needs. <laughs> um, obviously, prayer. We need you guys to pray for us. We're more than ever this now because of Oliver. We just don't really know. I mean, we're new parents. We don't know what his life is going to look like not being in America. There's a lot. I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. <laughs> um, there's just there's just a lot. You guys have kids know what that's like. Um, and then trying to do that so far away from family is rough. So prayer. I didn't expect to cry. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's been good to be a family this week, but it's made it harder. Um, <laughs> okay. Our second greatest need <laughs> is we're... While we're here, we're really looking to raise up more regular monthly supporters. So and it's what you always hear from missionaries. Every missionary needs it is finances. Um, as our families expanded, our budgets expanded. We just, in February, moved into a new house that's lower rent. So we're trying to <laughs> budget a little better and save some more money. But we really just need committed monthly supporters. Um, One-time gifts are always great as well. But if you guys could just pray for us about just everyone that we're meeting on this trip as we're traveling around and we're headed to the East Coast tomorrow. So hopefully we'll meet some people there as well. But we just need some people to commit to helping us out um, so that we can do all of this stuff that God's called us to do over there. Yep. All right. I'm done. We'll pray for them at the end of the service. Okay. Thank you. books of Ezra and Nehemiah. In most modern Bibles, these books are separate, but that division happened long after it was written. It was originally a unified work written by a single author. The story is set after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and its temple and took many of the people into exile. And this book picks up about 50 years later and tells the return of some Israelites to Jerusalem and then what happened when they rebuilt the city and their lives there. Specifically, the book focuses on three key leaders who led the rebuilding efforts. You have Zerubbabel, then Ezra, and then Nehemiah. And the book's design focuses on the efforts of each leader. Zerubbabel leads a large group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Then about 60 years later, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem to teach the Torah and rebuild the community. And then he's followed by Nehemiah, who leads the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And these three stories are designed to be parallel. Each begins with the king of Persia, prompted by God to send the leader to Jerusalem, and he offers resources and support. And then each leader encounters opposition in their efforts, which they then overcome, but in a way that leads to a strange anticlimax in each of the three parts. Let's back up and see how it fits together. So the story begins with a decree from Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he's moved by God to allow the exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And the author says this fulfills a promise made by the prophet Jeremiah, that the exiles would one day return to Jerusalem. Now, this fulfillment should trigger our hopes in the many other prophetic promises that exile was not the end of the story. We have hope for a future messianic king from the line of David. We have hope for a rebuilt temple where God's presence will dwell with his people. Hope for God's kingdom to come over all the nations and bring his blessing, just like he promised Abraham. And so it's with 
all these hopes in mind that we read on into the story of Zerubbabel. His name means planted in Babylon. He represents the generation born in Babylonian captivity, and he leads a wave of Israelites returning to Jerusalem. After they settle there, they rebuild the altar for offering sacrifices, and later the temple itself. The foundation-laying ceremony, and then the temple's final dedication, these are key moments. The past stories of the tabernacle and temple's dedication should be in our minds. This is when the fiery cloud of God's presence is supposed to descend, he's dwelling with his people, and it doesn't happen. And so while some people are happy about this new temple, the elders who had seen the previous temple of Solomon, they cry out in grief. It is nothing like their glorious past or their hopes for the future. And it's right here that we get the first story of opposition, and it's very odd. So the grandchildren of the Israelites who were not taken into exile, they had been living in Jerusalem all along, they come to offer help with the temple rebuilding. And Zerubbabel refuses. He says, you have no part in our temple. And this, of course, generates a conflict which Zerubbabel overcomes, but it's very strange because the prophets had envisioned that the tribes of Israel would all come together along with all of the nations to participate in the worship of the God of Israel when the kingdom finally comes. So this is an anticlimactic moment to say the least. In the next section, we zoom forward about 60 years and we're introduced to Ezra. He's a leader among the exiled Israelites in Babylon. And he's a Torah scholar and a teacher. And so he gets appointed by Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to lead another wave of people back to Jerusalem. And Ezra wants to bring about spiritual and social renewal among the people. Our hopes are high. And again, we come to another anticlimactic moment in the story. Ezra learns that many of the exiled Israelites that had come back, they had married non-exiles who had been living around Jerusalem. Some of them were non-Israelites, and almost certainly some of them were. Ezra then appeals to the commands of the Torah, that Israel was supposed to be holy and separate from the ancient Canaanites. And he then says that the people living around Jerusalem are like the Canaanites. They're going to corrupt the exiles. So Ezra offers a prayer of repentance, and it's very heartfelt. But then he rallies all the leaders and enacts this divorce decree that says all these marriages should be annulled, the women and children sent away. And then, the decree is only partially carried out. We're given a list of some of the men who divorced their wives. The story is very strange, for a number of reasons. First of all, God never commanded Ezra to do any of this. It was the leaders of Jerusalem who led Ezra to make the decree. Second, the contemporary prophet Malachi, he did say that the exile should care about purity. But he also said that God was opposed to divorce. And so, the mixed results of the decree this all fits into this pattern of a strange concluding anticlimax. See you up there next week. But take your lesson notes, would you? Sorry, the gimp is sitting down today. (laughs) It's about the only way I can stay comfortable right now. But take your lesson notes from your program. Turn with me in your Bible to Ezra, the very first chapter, chapter 1. If you're using our Pew Bible, it's on page 728, if that'll help you to find it. Route 66. Today we continue our journey through the Bible from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. We're cruising through these 66 books, one book each Sunday. This morning we're ready to study the 15th book, Ezra. 
Because we've already been blessed this morning with the Bennett's Thailand report, we're going to shorten our lesson a little bit here, so let's just dive right in, beginning with the structure. How does the book of Ezra fit in? to the structure of the Old Testament. Well, as we've noted throughout this Route 66 series, the Old Testament consists of three major sections of books, historical, poetical, and prophetical. Chronologically, only 11 of these books actually move the storyline of the Old Testament forward in time. Ezra is the tenth of these 11 Books. The rest of the Old Testament books, including five of the historical books and all of the poetical and prophetical books, just fit in to the storyline of these 11 books. So what's the structure of the book of Ezra itself? Well, as we discovered in the video at the beginning of today's lesson, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book in the Hebrew Bible. According to the Jewish Talmud, the author of the book of Ezra is, in fact, Ezra. The priest. He was a direct descendant of the first high priest, Aaron. Ezra 7 and verse 6 tells us he was a teacher well versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And a few verses later, it says that Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. The Jewish tradition tells us that Ezra was the one who actually collected all 39 of the Old Testament scrolls, all the historical, poetical, and prophetical books, into a single unit. And he stored them in what was called the Great Synagogue. In fact, with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the synagogue form of worship is said to have actually originated with Ezra while the Israelites were still in captivity. Ezra wrote this book probably between 457 and 444 BC. To give you an idea of where that fits in with the rest of world history, in this same general time frame, Buddha was living in India, Confucius was living in China, and Socrates was living in Greece. So that kind of gives you a time frame there. Just a quick word about the chronological relationship of the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Ezra chapters 1 through 6 documents the first return of the Israelites to Jerusalem and Judah, led by this guy with that fancy name Zerubbabel following the 70 years of exile and captivity. The main focus in that section of the book is on the rebuilding of the temple and the worship. Then comes Esther, who was queen to the Persian king Xerxes I, also known as Ahasuerus. He, that kind of fits in, that story does, between chapters 6 and 7 in the book of Ezra. We'll get to that unique story in a couple of lessons from now. Then Ezra chapters 7 through 10 records the second return of the Israelites to Jerusalem. This one led by Ezra himself. And the main focus here in this section of the book is on spiritual renewal and reform. Then there's the book of Nehemiah. It tells the story of the third return of the Israelites. And the main focus of that book, as we'll find out next week, is about the rebuilding of the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Now, with that overall structure in mind then, let's move on to the story. 
Once again, we're indebted to the Bible Project for their excellent overview of the storyline of Ezra in the video clip we watched to begin today's lesson. As usual, I've reproduced that entire chart of Ezra and Nehemiah across the study. The book of Ezra continues the storyline of Chronicles. In fact, the last verses of the book of 2 Chronicles and the first verses of the book of Ezra are nearly identical. The purpose of the book is to show how God's promise to bring His people back to their land is fulfilled. Jeremiah prophesied, as recorded in Jeremiah 29, This is what the Lord says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now Ezra is naturally divided into two distinct sections. The first we could call the restoration of the temple. Chapters 1 through 6 tell the story of King Cyrus and his decree that allowed the exiled Jews to return to their homeland. Interesting that 200 years earlier, Isaiah had prophesied that the temple would be rebuilt and actually he named Cyrus as the one who would bring it about. How's that for prophecy? Out of a total Jewish population of about 2 to 3 million Jews, only 49,897 of them were willing to leave Babylon and endure a trek of some 900 miles and face further hardship by rebuilding a destroyed city and temple. Zerubbabel, a prince, it says in the text, which means he was a direct descendant of the line of David. He was the one who led this first faithful remnant back to Jerusalem. And in spite of some opposition you read about in those first few chapters, the temple was finished 22 years later in 515 B.C. Which brings us to the second section of the book. We could call it the Reformation of the People. Chapters 7 through 10 tell the story of a smaller return. 81 years after Zerubbabel, Ezra the priest is given authority by Artaxerxes I to bring people and contributions for the temple in Jerusalem. God protected this band of of less than 2,000 men, and upon arrival, Ezra focused on rebuilding the people spiritually and morally. When Ezra discovered that many of the people and the priests had intermarried with foreign women, he confronted their sin, offered intercessory prayer on their behalf. They quickly responded to Ezra's confession and weeping with repentance, leading to a period of revival. And all of that happened in those last chapters in the space of just one year. So the restoration of the temple and the reformation of the people. That's the story of Ezra, which brings us to the Savior. Each Sunday, as we focus on one of these 66 books of the Bible, one of our priorities is to point out where and how Jesus appears in the narrative of the book. Now, please remember that there is one grand central theme, a single scarlet thread, if you will, that runs throughout in all of the Scripture, and that is salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. That's what this book is all about. So, 
Here in Ezra, we want to stop, look, and listen for the Savior. Where and how does Jesus Christ appear in the narrative of Ezra? Well, the book of Ezra reveals God's continued fulfillment of his promise to keep the descendants of David, the Messianic line, alive and intact. In fact, Zerubbabel himself is a part of this royal line and appears in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. There's a positive note of hope in Ezra because the Jewish remnant has now returned to the land of Judah in the city of Jerusalem and it is in this land, their land, that the messianic promises are going to be fulfilled. Jesus Christ the Savior will be born in Bethlehem, not in Babylon. Which brings us to our final main point, and that's the sense. As we wrap up every lesson, I want to offer the sense of each of these books of the Bible. In other words, what practical take-home lessons can we apply to our daily lives from the book? In today's case, what instructions, what applications can we glean from the book of Ezra? Now, I'll tell you, there are many, many fascinating and insightful and inspiring stories in the book of Ezra. However, in light of our time constraints today, I'm going to just focus on one, okay? And that is that God alone can turn hearts. God alone can turn hearts. Earlier I asked you to turn to Ezra chapter 1, so follow along now as I read just a few of these verses at the very beginning of the book. Ezra 1 and verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, notice what it says, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone, notice again, whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with valuable gifts in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Interesting verses. Again, the lesson here is that God alone can turn hearts. He turned the heart of the king. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation and to open up the way for these exiled Jews to return to Jerusalem in the first place. And then he turned the hearts of the Jewish remnant, everyone whose heart God had moved to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And he even turned the hearts of the Persian people. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with valuable gifts in addition to all the free will offerings. See, the Persian neighbors, they're in captivity, actually helped to finance their trip 
Back to Jerusalem. And again, he turned the heart of Cyrus the king. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem. Back when uh, all of the, the Jerusalem was destroyed, and Nebuchadnezzar took all those valuable articles. In fact, how amazing that Cyrus would willingly send these articles back for the temple. 5,400 of these articles, according to verse 11. God alone can turn hearts. And this theme doesn't stop just in chapter 1, by the way. It continues throughout the entire book of Ezra. He turned the hearts of the family patriarchs. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury. And then he turned the heart of yet another king. After rebuilding of the temple had been opposed and stopped by Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates and Shethar Bozani, there's some names for you, King Darius proclaimed, let the temple be rebuilt. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. Now then, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates and Shethar Bozani, and you other officials of that province, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Moreover, I hereby decree their expenses are to be fully paid out of the royal treasury from the revenues of the trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed must be given to them daily without fail. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, a beam is to be pulled from their house and they are to be impaled on it. Yes. You don't cross the decrees of the Medes and the Persians. You ever heard that? <laughs> May God who has caused his name to dwell there overflow, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or to destroy this temple in Jerusalem. I mean, you understand what happens here? Yeah. I mean, yes. this guy's a pagan king. Not only did Darius override the opposition from these two guys and some other governors there in Trans-Euphrates, he actually went further than that. He decreed that they themselves were to fully and financially support the temple rebuilding project. I mean, only God could turn his heart in such a way. And, you think that's all now? Let's keep going. He turned the heart of yet a third king, Artaxerxes. Ezra came up from Babylon. The king granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. In fact, in the balance of chapter 7, we read the letter that King Artaxerxes uh, sent with Ezra and the remnant returning to Jerusalem, providing them protection and instructing that the trip was to be fully financed from Persia's treasury and contributions. Generous offerings. Including, by the way, Artaxerxes' own giving from his palace. And Ezra responds to it in this way. He says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, notice this, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. Again, the lesson is that God alone can turn hearts. 
In fact, let's read Proverbs 21 and verse 1 out loud together. Read this with me. It's as easy for God to steer a king's heart for his purposes as it is for him to direct the course of a stream. (laughs) Great verse. See, God alone can turn or steer hearts. He can turn the hearts of kings and presidents and governors and senators and dictators and terrorists and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters and husbands and wives and employers and employees, each and every heart that God would choose to turn, God will turn. Now having said all that, I want to make one single narrow application today. In the words of the verse we read out loud a moment ago, it's as easy for God to steer a king's heart for his purposes. And in the spirit of Ezra and the accounts of how God turned the hearts of these three pagan kings, I want us to zero in on the truth that God alone can turn the king's heart. God alone can turn the king's heart. The king's heart, or in our case, our government leaders' hearts, are in God's control. This past Thursday, May the 2nd, was National Day of Prayer. And in the same spirit of praying for our country and its leaders, I want us to spend a few moments together this morning praying that God will turn hearts. It seems as though the most popular thing for us to do these days is to gripe and to complain and to point fingers and to cast blame. Why do we not pray? If God alone can turn hearts, why are we not crying out to Him on behalf of our world and our country and our president and vice president and cabinet and senate and house of representatives and state and county and local leaders? Read uh, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4. Let's read this out loud together. Pray much for others. Plead for God's mercy upon them. Give thanks for all He is going to do for them. Pray in this way for kings and all others who are in authority over us or are in places of high responsibility so that we can live in peace and quietness, spending our time in godly living and thinking much about the Lord. This is good and pleases God our Savior, for He longs for all to be saved. That's God's heart. And so I want us to spend some time today in prayer. We're going to put this into practice right now. (laughs) Put aside the notes and we're just going to pray. In fact, um, I'd like to have you do this with me. Since we have Jacob and Jennifer and Oliver here, I want us also to pray for the king of Thailand today. As we're praying for our own country and its leaders, I would like for us to include the king of Thailand today. He was coronated as king two days ago. He actually began acting as king a couple of years ago after his father died, who was very beloved. But his coronation didn't take place until a couple of days ago, and, and uh, I think we need to pray for the king of Thailand as well. That God would turn his heart. And let's pray for our country's leaders. 
We so much need this prayer. And next time you think about griping and complaining and moaning and groaning, instead of doing that out loud, would you pray instead? So we're going to stop right now. Just bow your head with me, would you? And I'd like for you just to spend a a quiet moment right now, just in your own words, lifting up our government leaders, starting with the president at the top and all the way to our local leaders, just spend some time asking God to turn their hearts and then don't forget to pray for the King of Thailand as well, would you? Let's spend some time together in prayer, just silently, and then I'm going to close with an audible prayer here in just a moment. Oh God, our Father, we cry out to You today for this world that we live in. We cry out to You for our country, for our state, for our county, for Springville and the foothills. God, we Acknowledge to You our sin in failing to cry out to You as we should. Forgive us, O God, for griping and complaining and throwing insults and just uh, handling this in the wrong way. When what we ought to be doing is crying out to You in prayer. Because God, You alone can turn hearts. You demonstrated it in incredible ways here in the book of Ezra. And if You could do it with these pagan kings, You can do it with our country. In spite of all of the turmoil and all of the restlessness and all of the godlessness that we are seeing all around us, God, You can turn hearts and we cry out that You would do so. Hear our prayer, O God, today. Hear our prayer for our government leaders, starting with President Trump himself. Praying all the way down the line through our Vice President, his Cabinet, Congress, our governors, our governor, Governor Newsom. For our state senators and state senate and representatives for our county officials and government for the cities around us we pray the name of Jesus over each and every leader God would you turn the hearts of these leaders to you you alone can do that It's beyond our 
ability. But it is not impossible for you. And we raise up the king of Thailand today and ask God that you would turn his heart from the Buddhism and the animism that he has been raised up with and that God, you would plant the seed of the good news of Jesus Christ in his heart, Lord. That you would move in his heart as you did in the hearts of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes. That you would go before him and use him for your righteous purposes, we pray. All these prayers we lift up to you on behalf of our world, Thailand, our country, our state. In the powerful and mighty name of Jesus, we ask that you would move. For we pray it to your glory. Amen. One simple lesson this morning. God alone can turn hearts. Let's continue to cry out on behalf of our country and its leaders. Let's continue to cry out on behalf of the King of Thailand, shall we? That's the sense of the book of Ezra. Route 66, as we're cruising through the 66 books of the Bible today, we have focused on the book of Ezra, the story, the structure, the Savior, the sense. We'll continue our journey next Sunday with the book of Nehemiah. There are 13 chapters in this book. If you read two chapters a day, you will read through the entire book before we get together next Sunday. And a fascinating book it is. Nehemiah was quite the leader. We'll learn from him together. Let's pray. God, thanks for teaching us today. Thank you for this book of Ezra. Such a key role it plays in the Bible, in the history of your people, and wonderful lessons that it teaches us from their examples. Most of all, again today, we pray that the lesson we would take with us would be that we would stop complaining and start praying. Help us to be faithful in crying out to you that you would turn the hearts of this world's leaders, we pray. Thank you for what we've learned together today. In Jesus' name, amen.